Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now this is part two of the three-part series for this case. If you haven't listened to part one, which is episode 70, I highly recommend you listen to that episode before you listen to this one. Part one covered the actual crime and this part will dive into the cold case investigation and the trial for the man accused of committing this heinous crime. But before we get to part two, let's cover the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And after CrimeCon, I'll be sending out True Blue Crime merch to anyone who has ever donated via Patreon and or PayPal, so feel free to donate now for your on-air mention and some future merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Alright, and just as a quick recap, in part one we discussed the disappearance and abduction of Ursula Hermann in Bavaria, Germany in 1981. A ransom was requested for her return, and although the parents were willing to pay, the kidnappers ceased all communication. A week later, Ursula's body was found buried in an elaborate wooden box in a nearby woods. The initial investigation revealed one suspect, but investigators failed to achieve solid evidence to convict the man. So we're going to actually fast forward all the way to 2006. This is when a cold case team is going to take a new look at some of Germany's famous unsolved cases. Ursula's was a prime candidate for review, especially with advances in DNA technology. Several hairs not belonging to Ursula, as well as swabs from parts of the box, were sent into a lab. The cold case investigators were thrilled when they got a match on one of the swabs. It was a match to a sample taken from a murder in Munich in 2006. But just as fast as their hopes rose that they had the killer, they realized the suspect in that case would have only been a few years old at the time of Ursula's killing, so there's no way he could have been responsible. And we'll actually break this down in part three, There's still a lot of debate about this match, whether it's a true match or whether it's some form of lab contamination. Again, we'll we'll break it down more, but basically, at the very start of this cold case investigation, they thought that this case was finally going to be solved, and after this DNA uh, fiasco, they're kind of back to ground zero. Then as 2011 approached, investigators were becoming more desperate to solve the case. The original charge in the case was not homicide, but kidnapping with deadly consequences. While on paper, they appear to be similar. However, the kidnapping with deadly consequences comes with a 30-year statute of limitations, unlike homicide. If investigators didn't charge someone by 2011, the case would never be able to be charged, even if someone came forward and confessed. So investigators went back to the number one suspect in the case, Werner Maserich. In 2007, the now 58-year-old man lived in northern Germany, running a boat repair business and a part-time snack bar. Police put their prime suspect under surveillance and even assigned an undercover investigator to become his friend to try to gain more information. In October 2007, his house was searched and a warrant for his DNA was obtained. 
It was not a match to any DNA found on or in the box. But one item in the, located in the search was found to be crucial to the investigation. An old sound device was found that they thought to be similar to the one that could have been used to record and play the jingles used by the suspects to prompt the Herman family during the ransom phone calls. A sound expert spent months studying the device and the phone recordings from 1981 and eventually announced that the machine was the one used to make the ransom calls. On May 25, 2008, police phoned Ursula's parents to tell them an arrest in their daughter's case was imminent. Under German law, family members are allowed to join the prosecution team and go through all the evidence, request certain witnesses, and even question the judges. While Ursula's parents did not want to relive the investigation, her oldest brother, Michael, agreed to join the team, and the now mid-40s-year-old family man and religion and music teacher at an all-girls school was about to be hands-on in the pursuit of justice that he had wanted since he was 18. And now this is something that is unique as far as I know to Germany. I, I guess I haven't covered that many international cases, so I, I guess maybe this does exist in some other countries, but this is not something that we would see at all in America. You will have prosecutors sit down with family members to discuss uh, investigations, discuss the case. They might be talking about a plea bargain or maybe in, in a case why they can't charge somebody, but this is basically this person whether or not they have any legal background they are joining the prosecution team and they've got full access to the entire police investigation every single piece of evidence that the police can see that the prosecutor the prosecution can see so can this family member and i do think it's definitely comes with its pros and cons. I mean, I think it definitely opens up the justice system. And at the end of the day, the hope would be that the, whoever was a family member feels as if everything was done the way that they would have liked it to be done. And they don't have much of an argument if it wasn't, uh, if they were part of that actual process. But I can also see where this could create a lot of hassles uh, for the case in terms of potential leaks of information for uh, potential issues in court with potential for mistrials if if this family member says something or asks the judge something in front of the jury that is prejudicial uh, to the jury so again i can see the pros of it i can definitely see the cons of it as well and in february of 2009 the trial started in augsburg in a packed courtroom Werner and his wife were both on trial as she had been charged with accessory to the crime. And the trial started with Werner reading from a 20-page statement in which he admitted he had been a bad person, but he had nothing to do with Ursula's death. And there wasn't a whole lot of information about the wife being put on trial as accessory to the crime. If we go back to part one, we talked about how his alibi was that he was playing risk with his wife and a couple friends on the night that Ursula went missing. So maybe, and again, they likely confirmed this, or they brought in a couple of his friends to question for a couple days. I'm sure they talked to Werner's wife for some time, too, to kind of confirm this alibi. And, and when this person makes an alibi for somebody, but then the prosecution believes this person, this alibi couldn't be true because they believe this person committed this crime, 
I guess the natural reaction is to charge the the wife with this accessory crime as well. Uh, the thought process also being that she would likely been present during this audio recording. She would have had to have known something was going on. This is not something that they think he could have pulled off without her knowing. And the prosecution knew that they had a mostly circumstantial case. The only physical evidence was the audio device, and that, as we'll talk about, is going to be open to interpretation. So they did their best to show that Werner had the capacity to commit such a crime. One of their witnesses, which was Werner's first wife, told the court of a time in 1974 when he was upset that the family dog had knocked over the trash, so he locked the dog in a basement freezer where it froze to death. He laughed later and said he exiled the dog to Siberia. He was also charged with fraud in 2004, showing his willingness to commit both acts of confinement and financial crimes. And this... You know, I'm a huge dog lover, so, I mean, some people will definitely say, you know, there's a huge difference between throwing a dog in a freezer until the dog dies and throwing a child into a box until the child dies. I get it. One's an animal, one's a human, but there's many people that that really aren't going to see a difference. Uh, a family dog is supposed to be something that you, that you care for and they have this you know, return relationship with you. They're out to protect you. You're supposed to protect and, and provide for this dog. And so to, to kill this dog in such a heinous way, uh, to make it suffer, it, it definitely, again, uh, speaks to his character, speaks to, to the man that he was, that everybody in the town, this is why they pointed the finger at him when this crime occurred. is because if this is the way he's going to be, this is the way he's going to act, it, it's not... A big leap for people to take to think that he could be responsible for this crime. The prosecution explained to the court that Werner had the means to build the box in secret in his workshop and was observed listening to the police radio during the time she was missing. And in 2007, while under police surveillance, he had a conversation with a friend about the statute of limitations on the Ursula case. And I've seen these undercover investigations, especially in other countries, some of them are extremely elaborate. There's a case I might cover sometime out of Australia where a similar case, a kid goes missing, ends up dead, and the man they believe is responsible for it, they assign an undercover officer to pretend to be part of like a mafia family or some type of a crime family, and they make this big elaborate showing where they're going to get him into the mob family and he's going to be protected and all this kind of stuff but he has to admit to to anything that he had done wrong and eventually he leads the undercover officer to the the place where he buried this little boy's body and then he later obviously finds out that this guy that was pretending to be a criminal was really a cop and they went as far as to have him do things like steal a car while the car was just forfeiture or something like that but he was he was committing crimes that weren't really crimes but what he thought were crimes so that he could you know feel like there's no way this guy's a undercover officer and i don't know of too many cases in america i know there's a couple that involve when a spouse has tried to take out a hit on another spouse and that an undercover officers acted in as the hitman in that case so it does happen sometimes in America, but 
I don't know that it happens to the extent of some of these other countries. And what shocked me was when I read this in this article, I was waiting for the, the aha moment where under surveillance, they had his phones tapped. They had, again, this undercover officer pretending to be his friend. I was waiting for that moment where they said, boom, he, he admits to taking Ursula at night, or he admits to building the box, or he says something, anything along the lines of, you know, I've thrown somebody in a box before, I'll, I'll do it again. You know, anything like that, where it was just that boom, that solid thing. And, and because, again, this is 26 years after the crime, and for the most part, the case has been cold for all of these years, so it's not like the police have been on him for 26 years straight, and he just has to stick to this straight and narrow and always worried that somebody's listening or or following him. I mean, 26 years is a pretty long time to be removed from a situation to where you could get drunk with a guy who thinks you're your buddy and say something that you about something you did 26 years prior and think it's not a big deal or say something over the phone to your wife or something along those lines and it's one of those times where almost the lack of any of that type of evidence it points to one of two things either Werner is extremely intelligent which they're actually going to say he's not uh, as part of their evidence against him or he's this master criminal which again they're going to say he's not or it leans to believe that he's potentially innocent but they use these couple examples from this surveillance against him uh, to say that because he mentioned the statute of limitations on the case, you know, he could be guilty of the crime. But at the same time, if you were a major player, a major suspect in this crime, I shouldn't say player, just if the police believe that you're involved in this crime and you're truly innocent and you know there's a statute of limitations that you've always had to worry that somebody was going to show up again and, and arrest you for something you didn't do, if you knew that there was a time at some point in the future that that was not going to be something you had to worry about anymore, that's something you might mention to somebody like, hey, just a few more years and I don't have to worry about them thinking I, I, I killed that little Ursula girl. You know, something like that, again, could be words from an innocent person that in different contexts, somebody's going to look at it and say, well, he's clearly worried and thinks that he's scot-free in, in four years uh, when the statute of limitations are up. So, so much of this case, and we're going to talk about it a lot in part three, is everything's on a fence. And it just depends on which way you want to lean as to if you believe the prosecution if you believe other people are going to talk about eventually if you're going to believe other parties might be involved i mean again and this is the problem with these circumstantial cases now as i mentioned they brought up that or they retested the box they had the original box still in, in storage so they swabbed screws for dna this is where they got that dna hit from the murder in munich they had dusted for prints back in 81 and had a, a fingerprint from duct tape and it as far as we know it didn't match Werner didn't match his wife didn't match uh, the two other suspects that he claims he was playing risk with or I think they fingerprinted something like a thousand people in the village and nobody the prints came back so 
again, either he's this mastermind criminal that somehow builds this box, other people leave their fingerprints all over the box and tape and all this kind of stuff, but he doesn't at all, not a single one. It just, it's, again, it's it's the lack of evidence, the lack of physical evidence in this case that has me questioning it, but we'll, we'll keep going. And although Klaus had recanted his confession, if you remember, Klaus was the buddy of of Werner's that was supposedly on the moped with the with a shovel and supposedly confessed that he had helped dig the hole and the police brought him out to the woods and he couldn't find the spot where the hole was he wasn't even close so although he had recanted the confession about digging a hole his confession was brought into court prosecutors sold the idea that the confession was real and backed it up by saying that Klaus's description of the area where he dug the hole the size of the hole and the size of the clearing all match where Ursula was found. They believe he deliberately failed to show officers the location that he dug as he felt he would implicate himself in a murder investigation if he did. And then came the most important and controversial item of evidence, the audio machine. When it was found in Warner's home in 2008, he told investigators he had purchased it a few weeks prior to flea market. He had no receipt for the sale, and investigators went to the flea market to see if anyone sold the item, but no one claimed to have sold it or remembered seeing it in any of the booths. The audio expert testified that they realized the machine was the same one used in the phone calls because it made a distinctive clicking sound when the machine was activated to play, and that same sound can be heard before the jingle is played on the recorded ransom calls. It was their expert opinion that the device found in Warner's home was the same device used during the ransom calls. And the trial lasted until March 2010, with prosecutors reminding the three judges and the two members of the jury that on the night of September 15, 1981, a little girl was taken and then buried alive and left for dead. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief as the court decided Warner was guilty of the crime and sentenced him to life in prison. The court did not feel that prosecutors had proven that Warner's wife had done enough to warrant a conviction and acquitted her charges. And this was also the other thing. In, in America, you've got a jury of 12, and it's supposed to be of your peers. And they're going to be the ones that weigh the evidence and decide based on what was said or allowed to be said during the trial and what evidence was presented, whether or not that person is, is guilty. And we have the guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So at the time of the jury deliberations, they'll go off into a room and it has to be unanimous. So if you have one person, even one person out of those 12 that sit there and say, I'm not comfortable sending this person to jail for the rest of their life based on the evidence that was presented, I just don't feel, then what is likely gonna happen, because the other 11 people, it's almost like peer pressure, will try to convince that person that they should change their mind but ultimately, if that person is dead set in their ways, it becomes a deadlocked jury or a hung jury, and they'll come back and say, tell the judge, sorry, we haven't reached a decision. The judge declares the trial a mistrial. You have to either be unanimously voted guilty or unanimously voted not guilty in order for a conviction to or an acquittal to occur. And in this case, it sounds like from how I read it, there's three judges and two jury members and it's it's just a different system but it's one that I see that has more flaws to it because it's easy to convince two people of something it's hard to convince 12 
And while there's three judges instead of one, I don't know that those judges are going to represent that different of an opinion based on the fact that they're judges and, and work in the judicial world. And I think the courts and the prosecutors and everybody had felt an obligation to, to bring closure to this case before the statute of limitations expired. And again, I'm not crying conspiracy here. I'm just saying I think things would have been different if it was a jury of 12 P of Verner's peers versus this two person jury and three judge panel situation that was going on. And the case of the girl in the box was claimed to have been solved after almost 30 years. But while Werner protested his innocence, he got support from the most unlikely place, which was Michael Herman, Ursula's brother. Michael had served as part of the prosecution team and had developed serious doubts about the case while reviewing the thousands of pages of police reports and documents that made up the investigative file. And as I mentioned before, most family members who join the prosecution team just sit back and observe the process because they're not lawyers, they're not investigators, they're not familiar with the entire process, they just kind of take on an observation role and do so to make sure their family is properly represented. Michael had this deep-seated pursuit of justice for what happened to his sister. He was 18 at the time, this was his little 10-year-old sister, they had been doing piano lessons together that day before she went missing. And so he's he has always wanted to find out what happened to his sister. So this is why he volunteered to, to join the prosecution team. And so he actually requested the full case file and locked himself in his office for days as he poured over all the reports and documents. And he actually found out that he had forgotten a great deal about that day and the subsequent days. And reading the reports and statements brought him back to that time period. When he had read the majority of the documents, he felt there was a lot of information pointed to Werner's guilt, but certain parts of the investigation troubled him. Mainly that Klaus was deemed an unreliable source of information, yet his recanted confession was being treated like gospel in the case. And when people were asked about Klaus, they said that he was always drunk and incredibly lazy, and one of his former bosses, and I think a wife of his, too, said that Klaus didn't have the stamina or the willpower to dig a hole that large. And Klaus had passed away in 1992, so he was not able to be called as a witness, and his confession wasn't even signed. And it wasn't even an account from the day he confessed, but a confession written from the memory of an investigator days after he confessed and then recanted. So the words in the confession were not even known to be uttered by Klaus that day. And this is another thing that I don't think would ever fly in an American trial is if you're going to use a confession, it has to be a confession that's either audio recorded or if it's a written statement it has to be written by that person and then signed. And then if they want to recant it and it's used in a trial, fine, it, it, then they can, I guess, be put on the stand and say, yes, I said all that stuff, but I lied, or however you want to do it. But in this case, it's not Klaus writing it. It's not something that was written that day and put in front of Klaus to sign that he refused to. It was something that was written by an investigator days after the confession, not signed by Klaus. And so we don't even know if what was in 
that quote-unquote confession is accurate to what Klaus said in the first place and the fact that he's passed away in 1992. So they're using, again, this confession as gospel in the court saying, listen to this, believe this, everything in here that he said, he, he helped dig the hole, he was going to be paid a thousand Deutschmarks and given a color TV, all of this stuff is true, you have to believe it, and that makes Werner guilty. However, don't believe the fact that he's a drunk, don't believe people say that he can't, that he couldn't have dug the hole if he tried, don't believe that he put on this big display for the cops, he was this great actor, but in reality he was this this complete idiot and, and, and doofus. So, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that we see in this case a lot where it can't be both things, but they try to make it that way to make the case stronger. And Klaus's body was exhumed so that DNA could be extracted to be tested against the DNA recovered from the box, and there was no match there. So there is no physical evidence linking Klaus to the box, DNA or fingerprints. There's no physical evidence linking a Werner to the box by fingerprints or DNA and I don't know what happened to these other two guys that supposedly he was playing risk with that came in but I know that their fingerprints were at least not a match and I believe it said that they went back and got DNA from everybody who was involved in the investigation which would include these two individuals and there was no DNA matches so again it's this broad-reaching, huge investigation with no physical evidence, and then they find this audio device and, and deem that this is, this is the missing piece to this entire case. And there, there's even going to be issues with the audio device. We'll get in that shortly here. When it came to the audio device, Michael's background as a music teacher had him questioning how the prosecution's expert could be so sure the device found in Ferners could be used by the suspects. While the device could have been used to record the jingle, the device itself was large, about the size of a briefcase, and the ransom calls were made from payphones. It seemed odd that someone would use that large of a device to play back something like a jingle from a payphone when a smaller, more portable device would have been easier to use and conceal. And this was actually brought up by the defense during the trial, and I believe the the answer from the prosecution was something to the effect of, well, they could have recorded it onto a smaller device then and brought that smaller device to the payphone. And it's what we're going to see a lot in this case is then why wouldn't they have just recorded on the smaller device to begin with? Why have this middle device between the two recordings? Why, why are you recording the the jingle off the radio on this device and then transfer to a smaller device now why not just record the jingle over the radio on the smaller device in the first place it, there's just again there's a lot of stuff that the more complicated answer tends to be the answer that the prosecution keeps coming back to when in reality it's probably the the easier answer uh, that is that is the truth so but during this process, Michael was advised by the prosecution and his own lawyer not to bring up his concerns with the court. But Michael ignored them and did what he thought was right and wrote a letter to the court expressing his concerns. He told the court he thought the analysis of the audio device usage was incomplete or at the very least one-sided. The courts did not take kindly to him operating on behalf of the defense and ultimately ignored his concerns. After Verna was convicted, Michael publicly stated to the court that he was not convinced of Werner's guilt, 
but he also wasn't convinced that Werner was innocent. After over a year of trial and reviewing all the documents, Michael was more conflicted than ever about his sister's death. In late 2010, Michael began experiencing tinnitus in his left ear. The high-pitched ringing can be caused by exposure to sudden loud noises or prolonged stress. Having just gone through a year-long trial that put significant stress on his well-being, Michael surmised the condition was stress-induced and a court-appointed psychologist agreed with him. And this was a psychologist, I guess, was assigned on behalf of the victims. So basically, if you were having some mental struggles, which are completely expected when you're going through the trial involving your child or your sister or whatever might be, you know, all of these memories coming back, the feelings, they, they have this court-appointed psychologist that is just set aside to work with victims. And this is who he goes to, and the, the court-appointed psychologist agrees that his tinnitus is probably caused by this, this long-term stress. And by 2012, the stress from the trial and Michael's obsession with justice for Ursula had strained his marriage to the max. He separated from his wife and spent the time going through all the documents from the investigation. He had scanned them and stored them on different folders on his computer, and he would go through them one by one looking for answers to his ever-growing list of questions about the case. And this is something you also see too. I mean, we're all creatures of balance in our lives. The whole work-life balance is a big part of it, but when you go through something like this, and this is something a lot of young officers, uh, new detectives, whatever it might be, they have to learn to balance this this push for justice, this calling to to always be working and and furthering the case and all that kind of stuff with time away from work with time away from the case and it's something that some officers don't learn well and it's why there's a high divorce rate among uh, police officers and you combine that with the stress and the ptsd and all the, the the stuff that a police officer has to go through when somebody who's not used to that world who's not used to diving into thousands of pages of documents and, and looking through all this stuff and dedicating their life to it and then he's got his full-time job at the same time it it can be difficult and in this case again when, when that balance goes uh wonky as it did in this case he's you know it, it cost him his marriage and in 2013 he replied to a letter he'd received from Werner during the trial so this is about three years later he had received this letter from Werner during the trial, but he couldn't bring himself to reply to it till 2013. And in this letter, Werner assumed that Michael's questioning of the audio device meant Michael believed he was innocent. Michael wrote Werner back and told him he had yet to decide if Werner is guilty or innocent. Michael felt the case still needed answers, but police and the courts now consider the case closed and justice served. They refused to look any more into the case and shut down Michael's attempts to have the case reopened. And this is a big deal for Michael. And Werner jumped to that conclusion that I guess somebody with hope does that, oh, well, if he's on my side, he must think I'm innocent. Or if he's arguing about this audio device or the evidence about the audio, he must think I'm innocent. Michael was quick to say, I don't know that you're innocent, but I also don't believe you're guilty. And that's, I think that's probably where, if there wasn't the statute of limitations, I think that's where prosecutors would have been too in this case. They, there's some stuff pointing towards his guilt, but there's some stuff pointing towards potential innocence here, and you can't prove either. You can't 
you can't prove that he didn't do it, but you can't prove, I don't think, that he that he did. And Michael wants the courts to look at it, but the courts are saying, nope, he was given due process, he was put in a tr this year-long trial, and at the end of the trial he was found guilty, case closed, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna reopen it. But later in 2013, Michael hatched a plan. Using his lawyer and his tinnitus, he filed a civil suit against Werner for the physical harm he suffered from the trial. By doing so, Michael hoped the courts would reopen the case to determine once and for all if Werner was the responsible party for his sister's death. If the court found there wasn't evidence to prove Werner was responsible, the case would have to be reopened. Michael's lawyer told him the judges on the case and the courts were furious. They tried several times to block the lawsuit so the case could not be reopened, and ultimately they agreed that if another psychologist ruled Michael's tinnitus was related to the court case, the case would be reopened in civil court. So remember, that his, the first psychologist that ruled that it was a result of the court case was a court-appointed psychologist. So you know, this is, I mean, I guess it's a second opinion, but it's not as if he just went to his psychologist not related to the courts and just said, hey, doc, can you, can you sign this letter for me saying my tinnitus is from from going through this trial and it was a court appointed psychologist in the first place so obviously they're just doing everything they can to try to make this go away make michael go away make the case go away and if every hurdle they can throw in front of them and all they need to do is get hope that this court appointed psychologist is going to rule that the tinnitus, tinnitus was not court related or, or related to this case then they'll put an end to it but this second psychologist did rule that it was related, and so the case went back into the courts, and new expert witnesses came forward that had their own reservations about how evidence was presented during the criminal trial. A different sound expert used the same audio device found in Werner's home and could not replicate the same audio recording heard on the police recordings, and his experiments had lasted for over a year. And another expert, a German woman based out of London, used the field of forensic linguistics, to which is the study of language used by a person. And we talked about this in the Unabomber case. Uh, forensic linguistics is we all have speech patterns that we've developed over the course of our life. We use certain terms, certain words, uh, say, you know, say things a certain way, uh, structure our sentences a certain way, all as just part of our subconscious as we speak or as we write. And that you that uniqueness amongst suspects can be used to rule somebody in or out in cases like a ransom note. And so they used the ransom notes and this expert compared it to known writing from Werner. And her expert opinion was that whoever wrote the notes was an extremely well-educated person and was hiding behind their education by using the, the broken German in the cutout words. And she felt that Werner did not have a level of sophistication to pull off this type of a plan. And after speaking with these experts, Michael said he felt there was only a 1% chance that Werner committed the crime. You know, we've gone from Michael believing Werner is guilty to Michael being 50-50 to Michael saying, there's maybe a 1% chance that Werner did this. I'm not gonna, completely believe his innocence there's still a chance that everybody's wrong and that Werner did this but it's basically at this point all doubt down to one percent 
and that's not how these courts are supposed to work. But the courts found Werner responsible for the crime a second time and ordered him to pay Michael 7,000 euro in damages. And it was a blow to his attempt to have the case looked at again, and Michael took to the media to tell German citizens that he felt the courts had no desire to learn the truth, they just wanted the case to go away. And Werner has maintained his innocence, and his lawyer continues to tell media that there simply was not enough evidence to convict his client. While the lawyer does admit that his client could have made the box and buried it, there was not one piece of physical evidence that linked him to the box or the burial site. He said it's clear the court was set on convicting someone for the crime and built a case of circumstantial evidence about his not well-liked client to gain a conviction so the court could put the case to rest. Werner, meanwhile, has hired a private investigator to try and find the man who sold him the audio device in 2007, believing if he could prove he didn't possess the machine in 1981, the prosecution's case is without merit. And the only thing I'm going to say to that is the way I've seen this whole court case go, even if he found that he could prove somehow, somebody could come forward and say, yeah, I sold that to him at a flea market in 2007, the way this case has gone, I, I would guess that the courts would just say oh well that doesn't mean he didn't possess that same exact device in 1981 and and got rid of it and then he was looking for something you know the, the same device and bought it again in 2007 it's just again that's the way this entire case has gone is that when evidence is presented contrary to the most reasonable answer they make up excuses as to why the evidence should the circumstantial evidence should still fit the crime so some final thoughts about the court case while i agree that Werner had the motive means and opportunity to commit the crime and that he knew who the girl was and where the family lived and he also had friends that could have assisted him with the crime and then they would have been motivated to stay quiet after the crime i'm not convinced of his guilt and as i said there there's enough there to say in 1981, the situation existed where Werner could have committed this crime. I haven't seen any evidence yet, other than the extreme lack of evidence, to indicate that he's innocent, but I have clearly not seen anything to, to say that he's guilty. And just because you have motive, means, and opportunity does not mean that you're guilty. It just means that you're a suspect until proven otherwise. And as I mentioned, there's no direct evidence to link him to the crime, and even the audio device, which was considered the key piece of evidence in the trial, is open to interpretation. The prosecution said the machine was the same one that was used in the calls, but then later said it could have been recorded onto a smaller machine to bring to the payphone. But if that happened, then the expert can't say the same machine was used to play the jingle as the machine found in Warner's possession 27 years later. And why would you keep the recording device for so long if you know you're being looked at for the kidnapping and murder? So if the prosecution is correct, saying that 26 years later he's still worried about the statute of limitations expiring, if you somehow have this, and, and let's not forget that his house and workshop was searched shortly after Ursula was found, and there was no audio device found at that time, could a friend of been keeping it for him at that time i guess yes but police would have been looking for this audio device they would have been looking for something that would have played this jingle and the fact 
you then would have to go back to the least likely of plans, which would be that Werner gave this to somebody, they held on to it for a while, and then gave it back to him, and then he, he held on to it for 20-plus years, hoping somehow to get past this statute of limitations that's on his mind, and yet this is the thing that brings him down. To me, it is more likely that he bought this device from a flea market, and flea markets are notoriously hard to track down vendors for. They change week to week depending on the size of the flea market uh, just because somebody didn't see that at the flea market doesn't mean it wasn't there again it's it's all of that there's no direct evidence one can't say one way or the other whether or not he purchased that in 2007 or whether he held on to it from 1981 and as i said in the case of criminal cases they're supposed to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt but there's a lot of doubt in this case and I mean a lot, and I don't see how it resulted in a conviction. To have the brother of the deceased questioning the validity of the conviction, having had full access to the case file, it's pretty telling that true justice wasn't administered here, at least not yet. But that's going to be it for part two. We'll dive deeper into the evidence tomorrow, including a very strange case of DNA linking this crime to a more recent crime in nearby Munich. We'll also break down some alternative theories as to who may have been responsible for the crime. But that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to rate me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.